This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. The image of God. Our topic today, Father Jeffrey, and all of our dear listeners, is the image of God, and particularly how that image no pun intended, or maybe a little bit of a pun intended, is used in the scriptures. What does it mean to be an image of God or, or what is an image of God? So, Father Jeffrey, to start off today, I thought, you know, our diving board could be something that I've learned in recent years and getting your take on it and maybe getting you to expand on that a little bit. Would that make sense? Sure. Okay. What I've learned in recent years... Um, this is just me having listened to podcasts and re- read some books and listened to some audiobooks and things like that. That, you know, when you open up the first page of the Bible, it's, it's the creation narrative, right? That's the order that, that we have received these, these scrolls, these books. And, you know, we, we're probably somewhat familiar with the story that God creates. He, he, um, he creates the universe. He brings order out of chaos. He separates the waters uh, above the earth from the waters below the earth. You know, there's land, there's animals, there's trees, you know, all this stuff he, he creates. And, and one thing that I've learned that this is actually contrasted with is the way that temples, pagan temples, would be constructed and consecrated in the ancient Near East, in the context in which Israel lived, that you would have, if you wanted to build a temple to Baal or whatever god, you would build the temple, then what you would do is bring in, as the culminating act of the building of this temple, you'd bring in the image of that god, whether it's stone or wood, the statue, you'd bring it in, put it into its spot, and then cut nostrils into the nose so that the spirit of that god, the presence of that god, could actually be made uh, come into that stone or that wood and make that thing alive. And that is the God now. And what we have in the story of Genesis is God creates the universe and the universe itself is a temple, right? Not, not only just this building, but the universe itself is a temple. And then into the center of this temple, he places not wood and stone, but flesh and blood, Adam and Eve, and actually his breath is breathed into their nostrils and they become living beings and they become images of God. They are the image of God. If you wanted to ask, well, where is uh, God? You would almost have to say, well, look at the people around you, right? Um, uh, That they are the icons of the divine, which sort of makes us icons of the divine as well. So I'm going to stop there, Father Jeffrey. I'm going to let you uh, parse some of that apart, give us a bit a bit of a higher resolution image. Uh, but yeah, I'll let you take it away from there, Father. Yeah, no, absolutely. Everything you've said is um, is spot on. I mean, the, the that first chapter of, of Genesis is one of the the later things to be written, uh, and it it really follows the kind of priestly considerations of exile and post-exile. You know, they're they're concerned at this time about building a temple again. And it really, this hymn, which we have, the Genesis chapter one, it, it, it reads like a hymn, is precisely as you say, it's a kind of showing of the creation of the, the cosmos as the building of a temple, the dome above and all the decoration within. And, and, and exactly that, that at the, the heart of any temple in the ancient Near East, you place the image of God. And, and in that place, you know, the, the, the writers here are, are emphasizing that all human beings take that place of the, the image of the living God. Now, what's really interesting about this, right? Um, I mean, 
first of all, the the word that is used, you know, for image, we 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 sort of take that phrase "image of God" and we take it for granted now. But it, it actually it means the same thing as idol, right? It's it's the word for an idol. It's the it's the word for, as you say, the the, the depiction of of the divine that would be made in stone or or wood or, or what have you, and placed in temples and shrines. This is the kind of common way that that religion unfolded. It was through idol worship, and so. In Hebrew, the word "tselem," in Greek, um, "ikon," uh, it, it, it is it's used throughout the scriptures for idols, right? So we we must kind of see this within that you know spectrum of of understanding and everything. So how interesting is it that you know the story is being told of human beings placed potentially as a kind of idolatrous thing, you know, within the heart of, of creation. Now, normally the way this unfolds in the ancient Near East, of course, is not everyone is considered, you know, worthy of this honor. Uh, but but regularly people in power, you know, the people who control the, the purse strings and who have the authority and so forth, so kings and others, they would have themselves crafted into statues and other forms of, of idols and so forth for the people to worship. I mean, famously in Babylon, remember what this is, this Genesis one is, is being written at that time or shortly thereafter. Famously, the great King Nebuchadnezzar has this enormous statue, <laughs> Selem, image erected of himself, right? And he, you know, this beautiful thing that we read you know, at uh, on Holy Saturday and so forth, and how he commands. You know, when you hear the sound of all these different instruments, and it's so beautiful to to, to have that listed so many times. You're supposed to bow down and worship this selem, this image, and and so forth. So the point is, in the ancient Near East, it's it's not everyone who's considered worthy of this honor of being an image uh, that is that is to be bowed down to, to be to be seen as an image of God. But here. What the response of, of Israel is to this ancient Near Eastern notion is that every human being is supposed to carry this value. And you, you hinted at that, what you were saying, but I mean, th- this is astonishing, right? This is like the sort of thing you'd expect Democrats, you know, in an Enlightenment era, the think of the equality of all peoples and everything. But But how interesting is it that the Israelites, having been... You know the Northern Kingdom completely vanquished the the Judites brought into exile in Babylon, and you know they must really be suffering. They're oppressed. They they're 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 being persecuted for for their faith. They're they're bewildered by what's happening to them. They're probably bearing some grudge against the people doing this to them. But that what they're willing to say here is that every human being, not just Israelites. You know, not just worshipers of, of, of God, but every human being is an image of God. That's extraordinary. And it's an amazing response to, to the situation that they're in. So we, we, we often say that it's in exile, previously in the wilderness and now in Babylonian exile, that the people of Israel draw closest to God. They, be, they really realize their dependence on God. But what they're also in that moment of kind of insight and spiritual breakthrough they're also willing to include their oppressors as people who are tselem, ikon, of God, 
right? So all human beings are, are, are in that place. And how, how fascinating, you know, is that in, in relation to the whole kind of unfolding of the scriptural story? But of course, th- the other implication here from these Genesis stories is although we are in the image of God, we are not the ones in control. We're not the ones who who, who kind of call the shots, right? So that's that duality of Selem or Ikon as either a proper image, right, in its proper place, or as an idol. And of course, the temptation is going to be always and everywhere towards some kind of idolatry rather than being properly located, you know, within that beautiful temple of creation, placed there, breathe, you know, inspired by God's own breath, by his Holy Spirit to live as proper images of God, doing what images of God throughout the ancient Near East were meant to do, which is rule, you know, so that, that, that that's the command given to the image of God in Genesis to, to rule, to be stewards of, of the earth. But the temptation always and everywhere will be to that bad form of imagery of idolatry where those purposes of God in that ordering of creation are not fulfilled. Right. So, so it, it carries right through the whole scriptures. This, this, uh, what, what, what kind of image are we talking about here? Is it the right form, you know, that Israel has kind of come to this beautiful uh, understanding of at a time of exile where all human beings are meant to, to kind of reflect who God is and to rule in, in partaking and sharing in God's rule over the world according to his righteousness and his law? Or is it going to be this kind of nasty Near Eastern, you know, idolatry where the image of God is twisted and only applied to some and and that rule, that stewardship becomes a, a kind of oppress oppression of creation and of other human beings. So it's it, it's it's a it's a it's like a it's grabbing hold of a of a sword, a very sharp sword on both sides. It's a it's a double edged sword that uh you know it it, it cuts in, in so many different ways as we go through the scriptures, but it's so important to understand. What is at stake in this word, image of God? Yeah, the Israelites seem to have a really robust and cosmic and just universal vision of what it means to be image of God, right? And it's really, it's a, it's a mature and holistic perspective, whereas some of their neighbors probably had these very perhaps childish and immature and small perspectives that a God is actually bound into this piece of wood or something like that. And, um, and there's actually a parts of the scriptures that there's a few, it happens in a few Psalms where the person who's writing the Psalmist, the person who's writing the Psalm is making fun of that, right? Making fun of um, wooden idols, these wooden images of, of gods. And he says, you know, they have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. Right? They have mouths, but they can't taste. They have eyes, but they can't see. Let those who worship them become like them. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is this, uh, it's, it's almost like a humorous polemic or a humorous insult against the, the immaturity of that kind of vision of the divine, isn't it? Absolutely. And again, these are astonishing responses to circumstance, right? Because, you know, Israel's never in a position to, to show that it has more power or more success than the surrounding nations. I mean, the, the, the ones they're talking about are, are the oppressive powers that are forever defeating them and forever, you know, causing them misery. Um, and uh, it, 
so for them to understand that the real thing is to be in proper relationship with the one who creates all human beings in his image it's it's a beautiful response to you know historical oppression and and uh, and so forth i mean the, the idolatry and and so forth is wrapped up in a power struggle it's wrapped up in warfare it's wrapped up in in a great amount of of suffering you know in the ancient near east and the that to to respond in that as you say, humorous way, but in a, in a kind of way that says, puts that in its place and says, that's not right. You know, the, the, the right thing here is to see all human beings called to a certain kind of, of kingship, a shared kingship, ultimately, and a shared rule and stewardship of o- over all creation and over, and, and to order the world according to the way God wants. Because God is, is by this making of an image of himself, willing to share his rule. That's that's the implication here, not just with oppressive kings, and and not represented in in created things, but he share his rule with human beings who can who can order the created things in their proper place and, and so forth. And that's the it's it's this beautiful response to a whole lot of oppression that that we see coming forward, you know, in Israel. But the the the, the jokes don't stop there. I mean, you've got. Elijah fighting the prophets of of the Baals, right? Who who mocks, you know, um, their idolatry and says, you know, where is your god? Is he b- away doing busy business on the toilet? You know, clearly he's not paying attention to you. That sort of thing. So it, it, there's this sense in which there's a confidence on the part of, of Israel despite their circumstances. I mean, there's very few moments where they they have any kind of control over their own destiny in political terms, in socioeconomic terms, but they're con. Confident that God has indeed ordered the world in such a way that that human beings together are called to to steward creation towards what God uh, ultimately will will reveal as His purposes. So the image of God is this rule of you know one of the images we should have in our head is is of ruling of of having God's power uh, God's authority shared with us and we become rulers and I. And I like to tell people, you know, when you begin, you know, you have creation and then you have Adam and Eve and then you have the fall, but you'd only only have the fall. It's like their children fall, their children fall. It's like you have the creation and fall and then fall and fall and fall and fall. And the entire story of Genesis is almost the story of God has chosen these people despite all of their screw ups and all of their falling. And people people have not lived up to that calling of sharing in the authority of God over the the world and uh, until you get to Christ you know the the gospels really portray Christ as somebody who does indeed fulfill that calling perfectly you know one one example is at the beginning of the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke Jesus goes into the desert and of course we've talked about this in the past as soon as he goes into the desert your alarm bell should be going off oh this is where he's going to screw up just like everybody else who goes out into the wilderness screws up but actually he he is able to conquer he he comes out on top and then goes out to begin his his ministry. So, you know, I think the gospel writers are working with this knowledge of what does it mean to be the image of God. But then the way that they tell the story of Jesus is showing him to be really indeed the one who fulfills properly what it means to be the image of God. Is that is that a good connection to make, Father Jeffrey? We, absolutely. The... the what we finally have in Jesus is a human being who fulfills what 
you know, it is written in, in the beginning of Genesis is supposed to be the case, right? That we have someone who is the full image of God, who actually represents the kind of, uh, you know, Selem, Ikon of God that w- w- was the whole purpose of creation in, in the first place, right? And the way the scriptures actually come together, the Genesis, as I say, is one of the last parts to be written. Certainly Genesis chapter one, it's written in exile in Babylon. But is it, it's a projection backwards, as you say, of, of the kind of story of this is what God wants, but we've failed to live up to it, right? So this has been the story over and over again. It's how Jews, uh, in the rabbinic tradition, you know, read Genesis chapter one. They're, they're not seeing so much a once for all perfect creation that, that once for all falls and everything from then on is like total depravity. That's not how, you know, the, the, the rabbis read that. What they read is the story of every human being, the story that has always been the case. They're, they're reading the story of Israel, right? A covenant is made and the covenant is broken, um, is the kind of ongoing and an unfolding story here. So in a way, what we have is this depiction of the temple, the dome and, and the image of God within it perfectly fulfilling God's stewardship and kingship within creation, that's actually a reading backwards, but also a reading forwards. It's a reading towards what the people in exile in Babylon are expecting to happen when the day of the Lord comes. When God finally comes and reveals himself fully to Israel and before all the nations, what will it look like? There will be a temple and God will place in the midst of that temple the perfect expression of who he is, the full radiance of his glory, the the the, the perfect uh, symbol of, of who he is amidst you know, creation. And that figure, according to those who met the risen Lord Jesus and who reflected on that in light of the scriptures, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the fulfillment of that. And it's told in so many different ways. You mentioned the synoptics. Then you've got John who, who deliberately sets out to retell Genesis, right? Starts with in the beginning, right? And so mirroring the, the, the creation narrative of human beings where God says, let us make, right? The, all the other commands are let there be and it happens, but let us make as a kind of project. Well, where is the one who's made? Ultimately, how is that project fulfilled, right? Pilate in the Gospel of John says, behold the human being, right? And Christ on the cross says, it is finished. It is fulfilled. That project, which began Genesis 1, 26, is now fulfilled. We have the human being, the perfect expression of what that is. And how interesting is it? Again, a complete inversion of what image of God meant in the ancient world, right? Image of God meant power and authority and tyranny and oppression, and it only belongs to a few and not to the many. And yet, how does it look when it comes? Behold, the human being is the, is this you know, the, 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 the bridegroom of God who, who, who is dressed with the crown of thorns and has been whipped and is carrying, you know, the, 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 the reed in his hand. And in, it looks like this, the king who hangs on a cross in self-sacrificing love. That's what a full human being is. On the cross, we see the fullness of God and the fullness of what it is, you know, to, to be a human being. And so there you have the restoration the, the retrieval of the original purpose for creating human beings in the first place. And now, not just even the model 
for what human humanity is, but the one in whom we can participate in order to fulfill this idea of being Salem, icon, image of God, right? So that it's by our joining ourselves to Christ that we can actually fulfill the whole point of being a human being. You know, there is no other reason uh, for uh, a purpose of being a human being than to do this, to, to, to participate in God's rule over creation through self-sacrificing love. That's finally the, 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 the fulfillment of that, but our capacity to participate in it. So the point of this season of enacting the kingdom is to talk about your liturgical Bible. So it's looking at these concepts that bloom in the scriptures, but see that, you know, it doesn't just stop there. Right. I think for many Christians, the Bible is just this thing. That's where the real thing happens. And then what we do in church is just study that thing or we kind of look back at that thing. But what we get to do as Orthodox is we actually get to experience that thing through liturgy, which in turn gives us that, that rehearsal space to actually know what to do with these concepts in real life. Right. We take that out into real life as well. So, um, this concept of image of God, I think, is something that a lot of people are familiar with, at least the terminology and maybe some of the basic concepts. But now I want to turn to how is this expressed liturgically, right? Um, you know, we we don't have... Well, it's fascinating. When we think of images, we do have icons, right? We use those painted mm. images of, of Christ and, and the saints, these people who share in the rule of of the universe with uh, given to the, 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 this authority given to them by the divine and we venerate them. And obviously we don't worship them. There's, there's a line there that we don't cross. Um, but also there's this really amazing thing that we do when, when the, when the deacon or the presbyter or the, or the bishop is sensing with the incense, he's, he goes around sensing the holy things, right? Goes around the altar, goes around the entire church, looking at all the icons, but then he stops before going back into the altar and he actually turns around and senses all the people, right? That the people themselves are the image of God. They are the, the idol of the divine, so to speak, right? They're the image of God. Um, so we have all of this language, all of this way of expressing image of God in the scriptures is actually present in our divine liturgy and in our services, isn't it? Yeah. And it, again, carrying that duality though, right? Because, um, you know, we carry in the bosom of the church, the, that sort of reckless period in which icons became a source of, of, of worship, right? So we have to be very careful about it, right? This is still, it, this is the same story unfolding, you know, again and again. And, and if, if there is, uh, you know, icon worship on the one hand and then iconoclasm on the other, this rejection of it. This is the kind of thing that's been happening throughout, throughout history. There's always this temptation to put other things in the place of what should be a proper ordering of creation, where God is creator, we are the image of God, and sharing in his rule and stewardship of overall creation through the reign that he wants, which is self-sacrificial love. So if that's the, the the ideal and the liturgy kind of draws us towards that, the the, the history of liturgy in the church and, and the, the constant reminders in the liturgy of the church are to avoid, you know, the extremes, extremes that, which come in where we, as St. Paul says in, in Romans, right, where we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling immortal human or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles, right? So this was his take on what happens when people put in the place of God things which 
which properly should be ordered under the stewardship of the image of God, but are now made to be the image of God itself placed above, you know, and, and, and it's part of this thing of, of, you know, the, the power struggle, the, the empire, the oppression and so forth. All of that is about a disordering of stewardship of creation. It's about a disordering of God's rule and so forth. So the, the, the proper place of icons within the liturgy of the Orthodox Church, I mean, it's very carefully circumscribed precisely to keep us from idolatry, precisely to keep us from the disorder and disordering of, of creation and of, and of a failure to steward creation in the way we're supposed to. So if we pay attention to it in the liturgy, we are brought back to the right place where we have been retrieved through God's redemptive work, God who came himself in his own image in order to retrieve and, and save his image. And we've been brought back into the, that proper place where, where all things are in order. And indeed, we, we honor one another as the image of God, as proper stewards of his creation. And, uh, but not placing any created thing or any other human being in the place of God himself, which of course is where the nations went wrong. And indeed Israel um, herself went wrong so often in, in its trying to, to kind of navigate through, you know, the, the, the power struggles of this world. It was often the case that they f fell prey to idolatry precisely because of a lack of trust in God and a, a trust in being placed in the temple of creation as God's own image. So we talked a little bit about kind of the broken image. And there's this one prayer that we say during the liturgy of St. Basil. And, you know, some sometimes these prayers are read out loud by the priests, and sometimes they're read quietly. There are Orthodox people who probably never heard this prayer read aloud. Um, but it exists nonetheless in the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. Um, yeah, Father Jeffrey, I know you wanted to bring this prayer up, and I'm not exactly sure where you wanted to start, so maybe I'll let you... Uh, kind of read a little bit about that prayer and we can chat about how that connects with not only the, the kind of the broken side of it, but the restoration side of the image, the, the, what is it, what an image is really supposed to be? Yeah. Well, the, the, it rather sums up everything we've been talking about so far. This is the great prayer of Thanksgiving, the great Eucharistic prayer or anaphora prayer in that liturgy that we have on the five Sundays of great Lent and other uh, great feasts uh, throughout the year. And it's all about image, right? Uh, so in this depiction of the, the, the Trinitarian nature of God and of his going forward in creation, it speaks about, uh, and this is directed towards God the Father, you are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great God and Savior, our hope. He is the image of your goodness, the seal of your equal likeness. In himself, he is expressing you, the Father, right? So the, the one true image of God is the divine son of God, the, the eternal son of God, the, the logos, the word of God, right? Who is the living word, the true God, the eternal wisdom, the life, the sanctification, the power, the true light, and so forth. So that's, that's in this first section of the prayer. But then in talking about creation, right? Um, it goes on to say in the second part, after the holy, holy, holy Lord of Sabaoth, uh, response by the people, 
but um, you are holy in all your works. You have ordered all things for us. So it's all about the order, right? This order of creation that we've been talking about. When you created man by taking dust from the earth, honoring him with your own image, right? So we have Christ, the son of God, who is the eternal image of the father. And now in creation, human beings have been honored with God's own image. But then, of course, it talks about being cast out of paradise because of rebelliousness, because of, of turning against the, the source of life. It talks about the whole of the scriptures, the sending of prophets, and so forth. But when the fullness of time had come, it goes on, you spoke to us by your son himself, through whom you also made the ages. And he, who's he again, remember, being the radiance of your glory and the image of your person, again, that word image, upholding all things by the word of his power, thought it not robbery to be equal to you, the God and Father. That's from Philippians chapter two. He was the God before the ages, yet he appeared on earth and lived among men, becoming incarnate from a holy virgin. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That's morphe now, but it's another word that represents image or, or, or representation, right? Um, took the form of a servant, being conformed to the body of our lowliness that he might conform us to the image of his glory. So it's all about image, right? It's about the son of God, who is the eternal image of the father, in whose own image human beings are created and yet fail to live up to that image. And so the very image of God himself is incarnate, taking our form fully in the flesh in order that we being joined to him, might now become the proper images, Selem, Ikon of God. And it, it's just this beautiful summary of everything we've been talking about. And it's drawn time and time again from those images that, that permeate the scriptures, right? And as I say, it's this duality throughout because the, the same thing is potentially putting things in their right order or potentially representing disorder, this idolatry, this, this placing of anything in the place of what should properly be there, which is um, God himself. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.